and uh, kudos to you for coming out here on a rainy morning, but uh, I hope and trust that you've had a good weekend. You know, we, um, as we've been thinking through a longer service time, and what we knew is that we didn't want to just kind of fill it up with just more and more stuff, per se, uh, but that one of the things that we'll be focusing on is really the, uh, uh, trying to create some more space for silence, and, you know, I said a couple weeks ago... Um, uh, this was just kind of this idea was just kind of reconfirmed when I read uh, an article that just talked about the fact that if you uh, if you give the gift and I think it is a gift to the congregation of having some time just in silence, there is a great likelihood it may be the very first time all week that they have simply been still and quiet, and so you're welcome. Um, but we do hope that we will continue to kind of, you know, cultivate what this means. Next week, we'll even talk a little bit more about what that means at home and uh, when you go about your daily life. Um, but we just wanted to kind of say that these are some of the things that we will begin to do. And we won't be talking about how we're doing it every single week. But we do want to communicate that with you. Well, we are, of course, on today, September 11th, as we begin this kind of new, uh, a new time, a new a year for us, if you will, in a sense, we are having a new sermon series, and our new sermon series uh, is going to be about seeing Jesus anew, the gospel of Luke. And so we are going to take some time to go through the gospel of Luke. Now, a lot of times when we talk about the fact that we're going to do a series, people want to know, okay, that's great, but how long are we going to be doing this series? And the answer to that question is, I really don't know. Here at Nervous Laughter, what I do know is that we're going to go through the whole thing. Uh, I feel pretty convinced that this is a, a kind of the right move for us at this time uh, is to slowly but surely go through it. Now, we may, may take a couple detours for Advent or Lent, things like that. Um, but by and large, I want us to go through it all. And it's a pretty lengthy book, actually. So, uh, so it will likely take us a year or so. So if you don't like Luke, um, this is going to be tough. But it's a great gospel. And so I would encourage you to think through just kind of being here and trying to understand a little bit more about who Jesus is through the eyes of Luke. Now, a part of the reason why I think it's really important for us to do this is from time to time, as churches, uh, we need to get together and we need to remember yet again who is at the very core of our faith. And at the core of our faith, of course, is Jesus Christ. And it's very easy in our lives as individuals and as a church, of course, to become distracted by that. And there are, uh, it's very easy for our, our worship and our allegiances and our idols to go this way or that. And churches oftentimes struggle with this. It is easier, let's be honest, it is easier to be a church that is united around a particular uh, kind of music. Or it's easier for a church to be united around a particular uh, political persuasion. Or it's easier for a church to be united around a, a particular charismatic leader. And we see that happening again and again. And in many ways, what happens, of course, is that whenever that occurs, inevitably, at some point, that church will begin to crumble. At some point, that church will begin to struggle. Because the reality is churches were called from its very beginning to be centered on Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. And if they are not, what you will begin to see is that the individuals and the churches therein will begin to make God in their image rather than being shaped and being made into the image of the Almighty. And so it is for that reason that we want to take some time and that frequently you should go back to the Gospels in order to remember 
who Jesus is because it is easy to be captivated by anything other than Jesus. As I was thinking about this, I kind of went back and began uh, to reread uh, Philip Yancey's book, The Jesus I Never Knew. And in there, he tells a story about a friend of his who was a professor at Texas A&M. And, and she assigned her students uh, this assignment. She said, I want you to read over the Sermon on the Mount, right? And that comes in Matthew 5 through 7. The Gospel of Luke has something that's similar called the Sermon on the Plain, P-L-A-I-N. Um, and and we'll, we'll see that here in a little while. Uh, but it has, you know, kind of these common things that you know. Blessed are the peacemakers, turn the other cheek. If someone asks you for your coat, give them your cloak as well. Love your enemies, those sorts of things. And so she wanted them to read that and then write a, a little essay on it. And, and she knew that Texas A&M, not a Christian college per se, but she also knew that it was in the Bible Belt. So she expected a little pushback, but, but also some, some strong affirmation. And so she was quite surprised when the responses were things like, you know, religion is just a hoax and things like, you know, uh, you shouldn't believe everything that you read. And, and then it got, you know, uh, even deeper into this. And so, you know, one of the comments was the stuff the churches preach is extremely strict and allows for almost no fun without thinking it is a sin or not. Another one said, I didn't like this essay, Sermon on the Mount. It was hard to read and made me feel like I had to be perfect and no one is. Another comment said, the things asked in this sermon are absurd. To look at a woman as adultery, that is the most extreme, stupid, unhuman statement that I have heard. Now, as this professor, you know, as she kind of looked over this and all these, she got, you know, was getting kind of depressed as she thought about this because she had never really thought about the Sermon on the Mount like this. In fact, she says that she can remember when she was taught as a child this story. It was, it was like there was a big poster, you know, all in pastels. And there was Jesus. He was on top of this lush green grassy hills because we know that Israel's full of these grassy hills and and, and then there are these uh, these beautiful little you know uh, children that are just eagerly eating up everything that he's saying and she said I just never even thought about getting angry about it but then she said the more I began to think about it the more I realized that actually there was some kind of gift in the comments from these students because the truth is that they were much more likely to be, that Jesus was much more likely to hear those kind of comments back in the first century than he was to hear just a bunch of people affirming everything that he was saying. She said, for the first time I kind of began to realize that, wow, yeah, some of these things that Jesus was saying, of course they infuriate people. Why would they not infuriate people? So much so that, you know, Philip Yancey, as he kind of kept looking at this, he kept saying, you know, it really is kind of strange, the fact that we seem to just kind of take all of this in whenever it is, and we just think, oh yeah, well that's no problem. And it's very likely, in fact, that the reason why we do that is because we have so sanitized Jesus' words that they no longer cut us at all. We just kind of take them and then we form them to what we want to hear. So one of my goals during this particular series is to hope that Jesus at some point infuriates you. To hope that at some point Jesus begins to challenge you as you begin to look over his life again. At some point that you become somewhat discombobulated. Because the truth is this, when that begins to occur then it is very likely that we are really hearing what it is that Jesus is saying. And it increases the likelihood 
It increases the likelihood that rather than Jesus being shaped more like us, that we will become shaped more like him. And so with that, let us begin by looking at Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 38. Here's what Luke says. Since many have undertaken to compile a narrative about the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed on to us by those who, from the beginning, were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, I too decided, as one having a grasp of everything from the start, to write a well-ordered account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may have a firm grasp of the words in which you have been instructed. In the days of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly order of Abijah. And his wife was descended from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Both of them were righteous before God, living blamelessly according to all the commandments and regulations of the Lord. But they had no children because Elizabeth was barren, and both were getting on in years. Once, when he was serving as priest before God, during his section's turn of duty, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to enter the sanctuary of the Lord to offer incense. Now at the time of the incense offering, the whole assembly of the people was praying outside. Then there appeared to him an angel of the Lord, standing at the right side, of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was terrified and fear overwhelmed him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will name him John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He must never drink wine or strong drink. Even before his birth, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. He will turn many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. And with the spirit and power of Elijah, he will go before him to turn the hearts of parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah said to the angel, how can I know that this will happen? For I am an old man, and my wife is getting on in years. The angel replied, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. But now, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time, you will become mute, unable to speak until the day these things occur. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering at his delay in the sanctuary. And when he did come out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the sanctuary. He kept motioning to them and remained unable to speak. And when his time of service was ended, he returned home. After those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she remained in seclusion. She said, this is what the Lord has done for me in this time. And when he looked favorably on me and took away the disgrace I have endured among my people. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth. To a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was much perplexed by his words and pondered what sort of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, 
For you have found favor with God. And now you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his ancestor David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary said to the angel, how can this be, since I am a virgin? The angel said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be holy. He will be called Son of God. And now your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has conceived a son. And this in the sixth month for her who was said to be barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, here am I, the servant of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word. Then the angel departed from her. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. God, we ask that your presence would be with us this morning. As we enter into this story of Luke, this story about you, we pray that we would be able to hear these words today and in the weeks and months to come anew. And that in them, Lord, we would find life and hope and challenge. And we would find you. And I pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth, the meditation of all of our hearts, will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen and amen. Well, one of the things I want us to notice as we kind of kick off this series, and I want us hopefully to pay attention to this throughout all of the Gospel of Luke, is this. Just how absolutely, undeniably, unequivocally, categorically, and utterly normal and ordinary the people in the Gospels are. I mean, we see this, of course, with Zechariah and Elizabeth. From the very beginning, there is nothing that is all that spectacular about them. They are just normal people who have been living their lives and are now kind of aging and getting elderly. That's brought up again and again. Nothing great, no great miracles have occurred to them up until this time. So they're very kind of a, a normal group of folks, and they're, they're coming, and we're told that they live blameless lives, but let's be clear, that does not mean that they are perfect. Instead, what scholars tell us is this means that they are doing their best to live into the Torah, which means that they are, you know, they're worshiping, they're, they're praying, they're eating, they're doing all of these things according to the Torah. So they're kind of basically normal people who are doing their best to live faithful lives. I love how, uh, I always like this part, uh, and I always bring it up, I think, whenever we preach on this. I, I love how Zechariah, you know, is so tactful, you know, in the way he talks to Gabriel, you know. I am old, and my wife is getting on in years. You notice that? How normal is that, right? I mean, just, just very kind of trying to be thoughtful and caring about one's spouse, right? It's just it's, it's, it's this very kind of normal life. But at the same time, of course, in that normality, we also see their struggle. They struggle with being childless. 
We hear it, of course, with Elizabeth, the stigma, especially back in that time, of not being able to have children. But even without that stigma, many of us know, of course, the struggle of not being able to have a child. And, and all of us know the struggle of not having a prayer answered, something that you've been praying year in and year out, and yet have found no relief, no answer, at least not the answer that you hoped for. And yet they remain faithful. They remain, as we say, they remain kind of living life according to the Torah. They keep worshiping, as we see here, Ze Zechariah keeps going and doing his priestly duty. In the midst of the struggles, but in the midst of the unanswered prayers and the confusion and the wondering, where is God in the midst of all of this? But let's also be clear that Zechariah's faith is not flawless. There's actually a great gift uh, in this, I think, to see Zechariah's response, right? There he is, and he, he finally gets this lot, his lot chosen, typically only once in a lifetime. Do you have the great privilege of being able to go into the sanctuary of the Lord in order to give incense? He does, and Gabriel is there, and Gabriel says, you know, the angel is there and says, hey, look, your prayers have been answered. Not only that, he says you're going to have a child who's going to be amazing, right? I mean, all of these great things that this child is going to do, it's really quite an incredible scene. And you would think, of course, that Zechariah, after having prayed and prayed and prayed for years, would just finally say, oh, my goodness, I can't believe this. Let me get out of here. Let me go tell, you know, Liz, she's going to blow her mind off. Oh, all of these things. Instead, what does Zechariah say? Zechariah says, whoa, 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 whoa. Now, Gabriel, I appreciate the sentiment. I really do. I got to tell you, you may not know this, but I am old. And that means I've seen a lot in my life, and I've prayed a lot, and I'm very realistic at this stage of life. And the odds of us having a child are pretty much nil. So if this is the case, Gabriel, I got to tell you, I need some kind of sign. Do you get the humor in that? Here is Zechariah. He goes, finally, after all of his life, we, we know he's old. His lot was finally called. He gets to go into the sanctuary of the Lord, the only one who gets to do it. He's in there. There is an angel who was there who was clearly frightening. And the angel tells him, hey, I know what you've been praying for. And yes, you're going to have a child. And it's going to be amazing. And all of these incredible things are going to happen. All of this is going to occur. And yet Still, Zechariah says, that's all great, but I actually need a sign. What part of that was not a sign? And Zechariah, I think it's, again, I think it's very faithful. But I think it's this great reality that most of us probably wrestle with, which is that after praying for a while for something, and receiving at least not the answer that we want, we begin to pray with very few, if any, actual expectations. And that oftentimes we come into a sanctuary, into a place of worship, with no real thought that the presence of the Lord might actually show up. It isn't, please hear me, I, I don't think it's a Zechariah didn't believe in God. I think he absolutely believed in God. I think he just believed in his own reality even more. 
And I wonder for how many of us is this true? Zachariah and Elizabeth were incredibly ordinary. I like what N.T. Wright says. He says that so often it is with ordinary people doing ordinary things who live lives that are half mixture of faith and devotion in which God shows up. And this is what we're going to see throughout the New Testament, throughout this gospel of Luke. And I, I think it's important for us to pay attention to. One of the things that's happening, the older that I get, the more I grow weary of those strands of our Christian faith that are based off of excitement and gold and glitter and gold and dynamism and charismatic personalities. And the more I yearn to be a part of a community who, as we say from time to time, is steady, stable, and plodding. Steady, stable, and plodding never trends. It never garners national attention. And yet, more often than not, where we see Christ at work, where we see Jesus at work in the New Testament, pay attention to it, is not through those people who are dynamic or who would ever trend, but it's through absolutely ordinary people who struggle, whose prayers, it seems, are unanswered, who have faith and who have doubt. Maybe you've heard the podcast um, that Christianity Today has kind of been putting out over the last year called The Rise and the Fall of Mars Hill. It's an interesting podcast. I'm, I'm not sure if I would recommend it or not. Um, but it kind of just, it, it just traces kind of the, this boom explosion of a particular church. And then it's kind of almost violent decline. And I, I bring it up not because I want to pile on a church. Because the truth, of course, is that there were well-meaning people who were a part of this church. And nobody should get any kind of joy of seeing a church have some kind of rapid decline and explosion as it did. But I do say it because I think it is really important for us to continually go back to this fact that far too often we equate excitement and size and power with the presence of God. But if you pay attention to the gospel of Luke, what you will see, I assure you, is a group of ordinary people through whom Jesus is continually making himself Known. And the reason why I think it is so critical that we continually bring up this fact of how quickly we are enamored by the exciting and the powerful is because when we keep looking at those people and lifting up people whose faith seems unreachable, whose gifts and talents are unspeakable, whose churches are almost unfathomable, we begin to believe that that is how God always works. And in the midst of, of all the hullabaloo and the fireworks and the awe-inducing exhibitions, in the midst of all the giant crowds that are oftentimes a part of this, there I want you to pay attention to, in this example, two old People who are faithful-ish, 
who are probably beset by arthritic joints and by an aching back and who carry, if you could see, a backpack of burdens and seemingly unanswered prayers and they are walking in the midst of all of this great distractions of, wow, God must be in that powerful thing or that loud thing or that exciting thing and they are walking toward you and they are inviting you, ordinary you, half prayers, half devotion, half doubting you, and they are inviting you into the story of Jesus. But if we don't pay attention, I can promise you, you will miss it. Because we are so easily distracted by the powerful and the exciting and the loud. And yet we find at the very beginning of the story of Jesus in Luke, two ordinary, elderly, burdened people for whom Jesus is going to work. The other thing that I want us to pay attention to this morning in this story, because I think we'll see it played out throughout the story of Luke, is Mary and her interactions, this experience that she has with Gabriel. You know the story. You've heard it so many times before. It's pretty remarkable, the faith of this Mary. There's nothing, again, all that extraordinary about her we're told but her faith is pretty pretty outrageous really i mean the fact that she asked one question but it's really more of a process question it's not really a faith question per se and after gabriel tells her what's going to happen and how it's going to happen you know what she says she simply says you know yes okay lord let it be with me according to your word in other words she simply says Yes. Now, we usually only hear Luke 1. This may be the first time, I don't know, when the last time is you heard this kind of story when it wasn't like December. And so, understandably so, that kind of frames how we understand this passage. And so when we think about Mary and that she says yes, by and large, what we think about is she's saying yes to the birth of Jesus. Yes, okay, I will give birth to this Jesus, right? And, and that's what she's saying yes to. And that oftentimes is kind of where it ends. But what we'll be able to see, of course, as we kind of go through this particular gospel, is that she's saying yes. She may not even realize it. She's saying yes to a lot of other things. I love the way that Keith Nichol, he, he says, he says, he says, he says that whenever uh, we find favor with God, there are always mixed consequences. Or Scott Hosey says this. He says, unlike with Elizabeth, right, where that is good news. He says, rather than solving problems for Mary, this actually causes problems. How often do we talk about when it comes to Jesus, hey, here's Jesus, don't you want to invite him in? He's going to cause you a lot of problems. But, of course, this is exactly what we see when you begin to pay attention to Mary. Have you ever thought through her life and what it meant that she said yes? Because it meant that she said yes to a future 
that would be full of blessings and good things, to be sure, but also pain and sacrifice and loss, even before Jesus is born, right? We know these things, right? She has the social consequences, of course, of being pregnant. Then, and again, we know this, you know, she has to kind of march, you know, when she's, you know, nine months pregnant or whatnot, all the way to Bethlehem. No fun there. We can all agree to that. But there are other things, of course. We'll see in Luke here not long, you know, one of the only stories that we really have when Jesus is just kind of a boy when he's 12 years old. And remember this, he's in Jerusalem and they've all been in Jerusalem, but then they leave and they don't even realize that he's gone. And then they go back and they have to look for Jesus for three days. Can you think about the angst and pain of that? We lost our 11-year-old in Salzburg this past summer for three minutes. And I felt the earth trembling underneath me. For three days, she cannot, they cannot find him. Or we see as you kind of continue on, of course, you see that when um, 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 she's there and, and, and she says at the wedding at Cana, hey, Jesus, we want you to do something. And Jesus basically rebukes her and says, woman, my time has not yet come. Or what about the scene when Jesus is surrounded by people? Inside of a house, and, and Mary and, and Jesus' brothers, they come to the house, and someone goes in and says to Jesus, Hey, Jesus, your, your mother and your brothers are outside. And Jesus says, My mother and my brothers are right here. I don't know how your mom would have responded to that. My mother would have pulled me out by my ear. She has to sit there and, and experience what it is for, Je for, for Jesus to be rejected again and again by religious leaders. She has to experience what it's like for him to be arrested, what it's like for him to be beaten, what it's like for him to hang on the cross. She had to experience all of those things. My point, of course, is simply this, that when she said, yes, let it be with me according to your word, there was perhaps no part of her that understood exactly what that would cost her. Of course, on the other hand, maybe she did. Maybe the reason she was frightened and perplexed by the angels because she knew this, that whenever you are in the presence of the Lord, make no mistake about it, it is always going to cost you in some way. There will always be some sort of sacrifice that occurs when you are with Jesus. Why? Because Jesus wants you to be in relationship with him. And do you know any relationship that is worth anything in which there is not sacrifice or cost involved? I couldn't help but think about uh, my, uh, my wife, uh, Megan, and when she was first pregnant. And we didn't know if it was going to be a boy or a girl, but I'll insert girl now because it was a girl. And um, I can remember that excitement, right? And, and just, you know, seeing it and, and being able to see uh, uh, the baby move inside the womb. It just kind of cultivated that. I was so excited. And, 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 and the pictures I had was just how exciting it would be for me to, to hold her, right? And to, to smell her and to kiss those little chubby cheeks. I knew they'd be chubby. I just could feel it. And, and to hold her little hand and, and go for little walks together and, 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 and take her to school for the first time and, and have her clean the dishes and take out the trash. All all of those things. And all of those things have happened. And it has been even more amazing than I could ever have imagined. But you know what else? When we said yes to this, when we were like, yeah, we want this child, what we had no idea about was how it would cost us financially. <laughs> emotionally. Physically. 
All of these things, right? I mean, it does. It costs you financially. You have no idea when you sign up for this what all the different little costs are going to be. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm looking at like third shift for Target. I'm like, maybe I could pick that up as well. We could do that. I mean, there's just all of these other costs. And then you're, you know, you lose sleep. You lose it at the beginning just physically because they keep waking up in the middle of the night. And then you begin to lose it because you're anxious for them, right? And you can't sleep very well because you're like, well, what's going on? And the older that they get, the more that you're carrying, you're taking them this way and that. And it feels like you have no time for your, your own. And, and, and then the older they get, you get more emotionally involved. And these are wonderful things, but it's also challenging, right? You, you see them interacting with friends. You see, you know, at times they have struggles with friends. And, and then maybe they, don't, maybe they don't get picked for the team or something. And you begin to kind of weep for them, right? And from what I hear, because I've sat with many of you, you told me that as they get older, it just gets worse. So that literally last week, before I was even thinking about this particular sermon last week, I, I said to Megan, Megan, this is getting all too complicated now. I don't think I can keep doing it. And she said, you do not have a choice. <laughs> but no matter what, even in the midst of the most stressful or anxious or painful or costly time, If you were to say to me, would you go back and say yes again? I would say yes every single time. Why? Because yes, it is costly. Yes, it is sacrificial. Yes, it is all those things. But of course it is because this is what deep relationships are made of. It is incredibly loving. There is nothing like feeling the embrace of a child. There is nothing like having conversations with the ones that you love. There is nothing like it. All of that makes it worth it. But make no mistake, there will always be a cost. There will always be a sacrifice. And for some reason at times, I'm afraid that when it comes to Jesus, we don't see it in the same way. We want to think it should just be blessings, and unicorns, and rainbows, and just eternal life, and all those things, right? Eternal life, all those things are true. Please hear me, I'm not dismissing them. But there is also cost. Now what I'm talking about here is not legalism. I'm not suggesting that there's cost and sacrifice because you've got to do these things if you want to gain the love of Jesus. I know there are some that struggle. That's not what we're talking about. I'm not talking about what I often felt growing up, whether externally or internally. For some reason, I always felt like there were two choices uh, that God always wanted me to do, the one I didn't do, because surely God did not want me to be happy. And that's not what I'm talking about. But I am suggesting that there are probably too many of us who believe that a relationship with Jesus and deepening our faith can be done without sacrificing anything, without it costing us anything. And I'm here to say that is not really a relationship at all. And so my encouragement as we kind of go through these next several months or even a year is that you begin to see the cost. First of all, Jesus started with his own cost. We will see what he gives up even to his very life for us. But I would encourage us to begin to ask the same question, which is, God, what, what is it that I'm called to sacrifice for you? For some of us, it's time. 
for some of us, it'll be this sense of, and I'm just going to give some examples, and it may not all be for you, but it, it's a sense of prioritizing time, right? We'll talk about next week again, kind of stillness, creating space in your day to simply be in the presence of God. For some, it will be home groups, right? Getting into a home group and doing this, or some other Bible study, or, or worship, all of these things. But I want you to know that these things will require sacrifice. Who wants to be in a relationship with someone says, I will, with someone, when they say, I will hang out with you when I have absolutely nothing else going on. That is not much of a relationship. For some of us, it may cost us, uh, it may cost us financially. Again, this is simply a part of what it means, not because God says, hey, I need your money and I need your money. God can deal with or without our money, but simply because of the fact that part of the joy of the relationship of Jesus is seeing how God uses those things that he has given us as we return them and how he uses them for his glory. For some of us, it simply means doing the hard things in life. Loving your neighbor, getting off of your couch and going out and introducing yourself to the ones who live next to you. Or being a person of integrity at your workplace. Or even loving your enemy as difficult as that may be. Could we have a relationship with Jesus without giving up those things? I don't know, maybe, but I don't know why you would ever want to. Because the depth of a relationship with Jesus, just like with all of us, always requires a growing, oftentimes, sense of cost and sacrifice because this is how we are shaped and this is how we grow deeper in our relationship with others. My prayer, sisters and brothers in Christ, is that as we continue with Luke, that you will remember these things, that you will hear Jesus' words afresh, and that you will know that no matter how gifted you may think you are or extraordinary you are or are not, that what Jesus wants, who Jesus is calling out to, is you. And as we do so, may we grow in what it means to be shaped more and more like him. Amen? Let us pray. God, we do pray that you would be with us. We pray for your spirit. We pray that you would give us courage as we move forward, Lord. Allow us to know what it means to follow you because we are loved by you, not because we are incredible or extraordinary, but simply because you love us. And so may we grow in what that means today. It's in your name we pray. Amen.